and welcome to this week's episode of What Your GP Doesn't Tell You with me, Liz Tucker, the podcast that produces medical journalism, not PR. I hope my show will be of interest to both doctors and patients, because of course doctors are patients themselves too. This podcast is all about what the medical evidence actually says, as opposed to what people might hope or think it says. And this week's interview with Dr. Jason Fun, a kidney specialist and fasting expert, about the potential of fasting to treat diabetes type 2 and a number of metabolic and neurological diseases is a perfect example of this. For decades, patients with diabetes were told to eat a high-carbohydrate diet, despite the fact that their problem was that their carbohydrate levels were already out of control. A major study published in one of the most prestigious medical journals back in 2008 had actually shown that intensive standard management of diabetes increased the death rate from the disease. But despite this, treatment remained largely unchanged. Yet the data now suggests the majority of diabetes type 2 patients can not only reverse their disease with diet, they can also prevent it developing and so stop many of the life-changing side effects from the disease. So what went so wrong in the management of this disease? But before we get to Jason's interview, a personal request from me. Producing a podcast like this requires a huge amount of detailed research and time. So if in the coming weeks you feel able to support the pod, even if it's just a five for a month, that will make a great difference. It all helps to keep the lights on. You can either sign up for a monthly subscription on patreon.com slash what your GP doesn't tell you, which gives you additional podcast benefits, or make a single payment via PayPal on my website, whatyourgpdoesnttellyou.com. And if you enjoy this podcast, please do leave a review on Spotify and other platforms. It really helps the visibility of the pod and also makes it a lot easier for other people to find it too. And I now have a mailing list for the podcast. So if you'd like to be the first to find out when a new pod is published, you can sign up at my website, whatyourgpdoesnttellyou.com. And now back to the interview with Dr. Jason Fung. Jason, who's based in Toronto, Canada, is a kidney specialist and has been a pioneer in the use of intermittent fasting and low-carbohydrate diets to treat diabetes 2 and other diseases. Here's his interview. So hi, Jason. Thank you very much indeed for joining me today. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. As a doctor, do you think medical training undervalues the role of nutrition in health? I think it very much does, uh, not just during medical school, but also during sort of uh, afterwards. So uh, we do continuing med- medical education. And uh, so there's conferences you can do, uh, lectures that you can attend. And unfortunately, a lot of them wind up being uh, put on by pharmaceutical uh, companies, which, of course, are mostly interested in promoting their use. And, and, and I'm not against medicines, of course, but um, it becomes a very narrow sort of focus. So then you rely on uh, organizations such as the heart associations or the diabetes associations or the medical associations. But unfortunately, they also are heavily reliant on pharmaceutical dollars. It's sort of understandable, but then the problem is that doctors and all health professionals wind up getting a very one-sided view that everything should be treated with drugs because that's all you hear about. So while they may throw in a session or two about uh, nutrition, it's clearly, clearly the minority. So it, you know, even though they give lip service to it, the message comes through 
that it's all about giving the right drugs, that our job as doctors is to give the right drug. Because there's really no large lobbying group for lifestyle, whether that be exercise or diet, as there is for drugs, other forms of medical devices. Exactly. And the thing is that uh, if you look at lifestyle treatments, uh, mostly diet, the doctors feel like, I haven't learned about this. And therefore, whatever you're talking about, whether it's low-carbohydrate diets or intermittent fasting, I don't know anything about it. So therefore, it must be quackery. There's this sort of idea that nutrition has very little value in the treatment of chronic disease because doctors get the message that, hey, I'm learning, I'm spending hours and hours learning about uh, the latest treatments and nowhere is, is nutrition part of it and therefore it must be not important. So it's very few uh, doctors that really start to push on this sort of thing. And I suppose it's partly because the paradigm of medicine is the randomized controlled trial. That's what doctors are used to looking at. And the bigger the trial, the more convincing the results. And running the very big multi-center trial requires a lot of money. So the people who tend to do those trials the most are, of course, the pharmaceutical industry. Exactly. And the, um, the problem is that it's the pharmaceutical industry that is doing a study on the effectiveness of the pharmaceutical industry's products, which of course we know, uh, and there's so much research that has shown that the, the person who funds the trial influences the trial results. Whether or not people want it to or not, many of, much of it could be sort of uh, unconscious, but it's very clear that if a pharmaceutical sponsors a trial on its drug, even if they use a third party, that that result is overwhelmingly going to be positive. And that result, I think, is shown again and again, isn't it? That whoever sponsors a trial, you're more likely to get a positive result. Absolutely. And that's undisputed. The issue is that nobody sees the sort of problem with that. You know, when they say, oh, it's all about evidence-based medicine. But what you're saying is what you need is independent evidence-based medicine. And your argument is that's not always the case. And that's not always the case. In fact, it's almost never the case. So you can look at virtually any drug out there and the person who has done the big trial is the person who makes the drug. So again, it's, it's, it's a matter of uh, doctors thinking that they're being very scientific by focusing on these big evidence-based randomized controlled trials, but not recognizing sort of the deeper level that the evidence base is biased. All of a sudden, it's the gospel truth. And anybody who says anything otherwise is anti-science. And what you're saying is it may not be very scientific. Yeah. That actually the idea of evidence-based medicine would be a great thing if we had it. Exactly. It, it is important because that's the only way that you uh, can change practice and improve practice. But it's, uh, you know, the problem is that the way it's being done now is biased and um, it, it shows up in a lot of wasted sort of time and effort, which could have gone into improving healthcare. I mean, there's so many other issues, for example, um, like if somebody does a trial and it is positive, but there's no drug company pushing it, 
it essentially just gets buried. So I recently, for example, there was a trial uh, published in the New England Journal of Medicine, which is the sort of number one journal, medical journal in the world. And it was on the use of a very old drug, colchicine, after a heart attack. So it was very positive, had great results, and very interesting, had good signs behind it, good rationale as to why it should be used. But the drug is pennies, so there's nobody pushing it. So, of course, you don't get this, you know, what I call the roadshow, which is normally what happens when you have a drug company-sponsored trial that becomes positive. And then, of course, the doctors think, wow, look at this amazing trial. So because there's no roadshow three years later, I don't see anybody using this drug that could potentially be as good as like any of the the drugs that are being used for uh, heart disease today. The drug is out of patent. So basically, it means that the drugs companies will not make the same sort of money out of it. Exactly. So there's no drug company actively pushing that information out to doctors. And unfortunately, the doctors don't realize, but they actually rely very heavily on the drug company telling them exactly what they should be learning. Um, So it's an unfortunate sort of situation. I don't think anybody's trying to you know, be a bad person here, but the way the system is set up is very unfortunate that you could have a treatment that could potentially be very useful for people that is not getting it because no drug company is willing to to, to step out there. And the associations, heart associations, diabetes associations, that kind of thing, have that similar sort of bias. Same thing with guidelines. When you look at guidelines, people who write guidelines for any of the major national uh, things. However, like, is it really too much to ask that the people who write our national guidelines do not take any money, like be completely unbiased? I mean, the situation is ridiculous because would you say, like, if you had a judge or a police officer, would you say, yeah, it's okay to take money from Walmart, right? It's like, you'd be like, no, you can't be a judge. You can't be a police officer and take money from somebody else. You get paid by the government. If you take money from anybody else, they're going to bias you. So you're not allowed to do that. So it's the same thing. And people say, oh, it's because these are the most prominent people and therefore they're taking, uh, they're, they're the ones doing research, which means they're taking money from pharmaceuticals to do research and that's why. That's just an excuse to me. I mean, to me, it's like anybody who writes a guideline should not have any conflicts of interest, just like a judge shouldn't have a conflict of interest. A journalist shouldn't have a conflict of interest, Right. It's just against the rules for every other profession, but medicine. And it hurts people because you're not getting the independence. It's not that the data is bad or the science is bad or people are malicious. It's that you don't have that independent body uh, where you're going to eliminate the bias towards pharmaceutical agents. And again, I, I don't have anything against pharmaceutical agents. I think they do have a great role to play, but other things that don't make money, such as those off-patent drugs, such as, you know, diet, lifestyle. Um, It simply doesn't deserve, uh, it doesn't get the money or attention it deserves. Like, instead of running a trial on the sort of fourth type of blood thinner, why couldn't we run a trial on diet, right? It would be a much better use of money for the public health than, you know, seeing if 
this blood thinner is slightly better than this blood thinner because they're both blood thinners and it's not going to get that big a difference or cholesterol lowering agent if this one is slightly better than this one or the combination. It's just not going to change any kind of paradigm. So therefore, the benefit to the overall public health is going to be very low. And um, unfortunately, that's going to have to come, that push is going to have to come from outside the medical community, because the medical community is very, very cozy with the way things are. So Jason, where does the push come from? You say it's not going to come from the medical community. Where does it come from then? People have to be made aware of these uh, conflicts of interest. I think it has to come from the public. And uh, if you look at the push to uh, go to lower carbohydrates or reduce processed foods, that push is all coming from the public. The public has pushed much more for that or you know, interventions like intermittent fasting, which could potentially be useful. So this is an intervention where it could potentially treat diseases of like obesity or type 2 diabetes, which are highly prevalent and very, very much important to, to reducing risk of heart disease and stroke and cancer. Um, there's virtually no medical push to, to study them or to look at them seriously or promote them. So how did you get interested in this? Did all your medic friends think you were batty for looking at fasting? Um, yes. <laughs> I sort of came to the realization that type 2 diabetes, which is what I treat a lot of, so I'm a kidney specialist. Type 2 diabetes is the biggest cause of, of kidney disease um, in the United States and Canada. So the idea, there was an idea years ago that type 2 diabetes is chronic and progressive. And this was taught to medical students, everybody believed it, and you needed drugs to treat it, right? And the problem was that at the same time that we said that it was chronic and progressive and you needed lots of drugs, everybody knew it wasn't true. Everybody knew it was just a lie. If you lost weight, your type 2 diabetes almost always got better. So the key was not to uh, give more drugs. The key was to get people to lose weight. You lose the weight, the type 2 diabetes gets better. So I started to look at, at the sort of science behind uh, weight gain, this whole idea of calories in, calories out was a very spectacularly unsuccessful idea. People had been doing this sort of calorie counting and calories in, calories out for decades, decades. I mean, it was what I was taught in medical school. It was all about willpower and calorie counting. And it turns out that it worked for virtually nobody. And yet the medical advice was still to continue to do this. And, and I thought that was very strange because if you think about it, you have an intervention for weight loss, this calorie counting, which is about 95% unsuccessful. So a 5% success rate. And yet this is considered the sort of most scientific way to do it. It's like, okay, but why would you recommend a treatment that has a 95% failure rate? It doesn't make any sense. And the diet industry has made billions of dollars from that. Yeah. I mean, the diet industry is sort of this amalgam of medical professionals and sort of thing. It, it, it does tend, but there's a lot of public interest in it. So it tends to run in sort of trends and fads and so on. Um, but the, so, so sometimes you get these things that, you know, are a little bit suspect, but on the other hand, other things like intermittent fasting, that has been around for thousands of years as a practice. It's, it just goes back longer than any other dietary intervention. It's the oldest one. And it's, it's something that there was no reason not to do it. It just didn't make any sense that it didn't. 
obviously have to use it in the right situation and in the right person and give the right support. It's not fun or it's not easy, but it is something that can be used as a therapeutic tool, but nobody was using it as a therapeutic tool. So if you don't eat, then your body will use some of the excess sugar. Your blood sugars will come down. Not that difficult to understand. So why can't you use that as a therapeutic tool to treat people rather than putting them on medications? And of course, none of the doctors thought it was reasonable because they had never heard of it. So they reasoned that, hey, if they never heard of it and they're the diabetes expert, then it, it must be quackly. This was back in 2013 or so. People thought I was just crazy. You know, it was something that was just so far out of line and so on. But as people started to listen to it, they started to understand, hey, the science here is actually pretty good. There's actually nothing wrong with it uh, as a as a treatment. Whether people can do it or not is is a different story. But if you know, it, it, as a treatment, there's nothing wrong with using this. Uh, just the way that you would use a drug, like make sure you're using the right person, make sure you're monitoring them, and so on. And that's where it started to sort of uh, become more popular and people started to think about it and talk about it, which is good. And then now the studies are starting to come out. But what's interesting, going back to classic diabetes medication, there was a very famous trial called the ACCORD trial. The researchers imagined that intensive management of diabetes with state-of-the-art drugs would produce the best results. And actually what they found was an increase in mortality and morbidity in the people on the intensive drug regime. Yeah, and that was a one trial that really sort of started me thinking. And unfortunately, the rest of the sort of establishment didn't really change any of their practice. And the idea was that if you give a lot of drugs to get the blood sugar down, then you will reduce heart attacks and strokes because it was thought that that's the main problem is that the sugar is too high. What they didn't sort of recognize, which is sort of more um, easy to recognize in retrospect, is that it wasn't the blood sugar high that was the problem. That was only the symptom. That wasn't the disease. So if you take that sugar that's in the blood and simply shove it back into your liver, well, it doesn't do anything. The minute you stop taking the drug, that sugar is just going to spill back out. But it was all that excess sugar in the body that was causing all the damage. So the drugs, the, and these were older drugs, of course, uh, insulin and sulfonylureas, these drugs didn't actually get rid of the sugar in the body. It just simply took the sugar that was in the blood and moved it back into storage in the liver, in the body. It increased body fat because the body took that sugar and turned it into fat. So people were gaining weight. Think about it this way. If you have uh, type 2 diabetes and overweight, then if you take this medication, you're going to gain weight over time. As you gain weight over time, your type 2 diabetes will get worse, which means you're going to need more insulin, which is going to cause more weight gain which is going to cause you to take more insulin, right? So you're actually in a vicious cycle to get worse, which is exactly what the Accord study had shown. If instead you use, say, intermittent fasting, so you're basically not allowing sugar to go into your body and you're allowing your body to burn off the sugar. And then as you burn sugar, you'll burn body fat. As you lose weight, as you burn the body fat, your diabetes will get better because we know that. As your diabetes gets better, you need to take less insulin, which is going to make you lose a bit more weight, which is going to cause you to get better in terms of your diabetes. Type 2 diabetes is the disease. The high blood sugar is the symptom. We took, mistook the symptom for the actual disease, thinking that, hey, if we just get the blood sugar down, 
everything will get better. It's sort of like if you have an infection, you have an abscess, right? It causes a fever. If you simply bring down the fever, but don't give antibiotics, you haven't done anything, right? Because you're treating the symptom. You're not treating the disease. You need to, you know, drain the abscess, give antibiotics. Same thing. You had a disease of obesity and type 2 diabetes, which caused the high blood sugar. The disease was obesity type 2 diabetes, which is your whole body being filled with sugar. And you had a symptom, which is a high blood sugar. You treated the symptom, things got worse, as you would expect. But what I don't understand about the traditional model of diabetes 2, you've got diabetes 2, as you say, you've got the symptom that your blood sugar levels are out of control. We have three food groups. Fats don't affect your blood sugar at all. Proteins affect your blood sugar a little. Carbohydrates have a major effect. And yet we had this system, or we still do in many places, you're diabetic, you eat carbs, your blood sugar shoots up, so you're given some insulin to bring it down, you eat carbs, take some insulin, and so it goes on. But given that carbohydrates push <laughs> your blood sugar up, why on earth did anyone think that was an effective way to help people with diabetes too? Yeah, and when you look back, it seems rather ridiculous because, you know, as you point out, there's three macronutrients. Your blood glucose is too high. That's, you know, we know that. That's a fact. And there's one food group that's going to spike that blood glucose more than any other one. And that's the one we told people to eat 50 to 60% of their diet up. It doesn't make any sense. But of course, you have to understand that at the time this advice was being given, people were completely fat phobic. It was believed that if you ate dietary fat, you would clog your arteries and then you'd have a heart attack. And therefore, if you cut down the fat, your protein levels generally stay even because it's very hard to just have a pure protein diet. Fat and protein tend to go together. Um, so if you're going to reduce dietary fat to a significant degree, then you're going to need to eat lots of carbohydrates. And again, it's not very difficult. I mean, carbohydrates chemically are chains of sugar, chains of glucose. When you eat them, your blood glucose goes up because you're eating glucose. If you eat fat or protein, those are amino acids, those are fatty acids, it's not glucose. So therefore, your blood glucose doesn't go up. So it's, it's pretty easy to understand. But of course, at the time of, uh, you know, this recommendations were being made in the 80s and 90s, of course, everybody thought dietary fat was the sort of number one evil. Then, of course, in the 2000s, they started getting studies to show that, hey, nuts are very healthy. And, you know, Mediterranean diet, which was a relatively high fat diet was very healthy and fatty fish was very healthy. And, olive oil was very healthy and avocados were very healthy. So then they had to actually introduce the term healthy fats to distinguish because at the time, of course, everybody knew fat was bad. And therefore they had to say, oh, it's healthy fat. But it turns out that fats are just fats. Some are healthy, some are not so healthy. And, um, you know, there was no reason to avoid them to the extent that we did, which inadvertently pushed us into an extremely high carbohydrate diet, which inadvertently made the type two diabetes worse because you're just giving all this glucose when the whole disease is that you have too much glucose. So Jason, what percentage of diabetes two patients do you think can manage their disease with diet alone? Dr. Unwin uh, in the UK, he actually has published data on this. So he uh, has been uh, promoting low carbohydrate diet in his practice in uh, Norwood. And uh, he actually has 
a rate of drug-free diabetes remission. That is, you take people who are diabetic and you get them to a state where they are off of all their drugs and their sugar levels at a level that is defined as non-diabetic. So you turn these type 2 diabetics into non-diabetics. And it was about 52%, like an unbelievably high number, considering that the traditional uh, sort of view is that 0% of these people can go into remission. He's at 50 plus percent, which is unbelievable for pre-diabetes. It's like 93%. It's an unbelievably high ratio. And it makes sense because type 2 diabetes is predominantly a dietary and lifestyle disease. You can't use drugs to treat a dietary disease. It's like bringing a snorkel to a bicycle race. You need to fix the diet. That's the root cause. You give drugs for a dietary disease and you don't touch the diet, you're not going to be successful. When I spoke to David Unwin some time ago, he had one of the lowest diabetes drugs budget because in the UK, the diabetes drugs are 10% of our GP's drugs budget. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it, was, it was huge. Quite a bit lower. You know, if you look at other people's diabetes remission rates, they're probably in the, you know, one to 2% range. And that's probably from people who did it themselves, as opposed to the physician really helping them do it, bring the right tools to the situation and you can get amazing results. But these have a real impact on people's lives. And people assume, well, you know, the Diabetes Association will tell us, or our doctors will tell us. And it's like, well, Unfortunately, the way that medical education works, your doctor may not know that much about it. They may know all about the latest drug, but they may not know about this. Dr. Unwin did win an award of NHS Innovator of the Year, but when he started doing this with his patients, he told me that he got a number of letters from dietitians telling him that he was putting his patients' lives at risk. Yeah, unfortunately, when you go against the sort of normal standard operating procedure, people assume, and, and I don't think the people who said that were being malicious, right? So they believed it. They believed that they were doing the best for their patients too. Uh, they simply couldn't understand why, you know, why it would work and then they haven't heard of it sort of thing, right? So uh, they assumed it was just quackery, uh, but there's good, good science behind it. Now, of course, it's a lot easier because there's been more and more data you know, even if you look at the American Diabetes Association, they've uh, said in their nutritional statement that the low-carb diet actually has the most evidence behind it. So it's it's not sort of on that fringe anymore. So therefore, people are saying yes, but it's like, okay, but why did it take 30, 40 years to get to the point where you say, well, you know, don't eat those foods that are going to spike your blood glucose because your blood glucose is so high. Like you'd think that a five-year-old could sort of understand that sort of logic. So in the hospital that you operated in initially, when you started suggesting this, did you also have the dietitian saying, look, this is bonkers. You've got to stop. You're just going to hurt people. Yeah, absolutely. I had, I had a lot of that actually. Interestingly, the doctors always, you know, as soon as you explained it to them, so I, I would give lectures and all this. As soon as you explain them what's happening with uh, intermittent fasting, low-carbohydrate diets, they'd all be like, oh, that makes total sense. If you think about it this way, if you uh, look at how people used to eat in the 70s, they ate from sort of 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. That was just sort of the standard, right? So you had a 14-hour period of fasting every day without thinking about it, right? If you had breakfast at 8, dinner at 6, that's 14 hours of fasting. That is literally what body fat is for. It's a source of energy. 
So why do you need to eat? Why do you need to put more energy into your body since your body has already stored so much energy? Let your body use it because that's what it's for. The body fat's not there for looks. It's there for you to use if you're not eating. So if you don't eat, your body will figure it out. Like it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tremendous system. Otherwise, we would never have survived all these centuries, right? It, it simply doesn't make sense that we need to put sort of food in our mouth every three hours in order for us as a species to survive. Humans can go for more than 20 hours without eating, clearly. So this idea that we shouldn't do it or can't do it was just ridiculous. It just wasn't true. And it's interesting that actually even for type 1 diabetes, you may not be able to manage that fully by diet, but I've certainly spoken to a number of people who are using it now as part of the management of their disease, which means that they've been able to reduce their drugs. Yeah, so type 1 diabetes is a lack of insulin. So insulin is a drug. So when you eat um, particular carbohydrates, your body produces insulin, which tells your body to store some of that energy. And type 2 diabetes, which is the more prevalent one, your insulin levels are really too high. So your body has basically put away a lot of sugar, you know, into storage, body fat, and your insulin levels are too high. So therefore, if you're giving interventions like low carbohydrate diets or intermittent fasting to lower those insulin levels, then that's going to be quite effective. However, in type one diabetes, what you have is a situation where your body can't produce any insulin. And therefore, in untreated type 1 diabetes, if you don't take insulin, you'll actually continue to lose weight until you die because you can't simply can't store any of that sugar away. In type 1 diabetes, you will never get off of the insulin, but you can manage it because if you don't eat so many carbohydrates, your body doesn't need as much insulin. So instead of taking 40 units of insulin, you might be able to get by with 20 units of insulin, for example. So you can reduce your body's requirements for insulin by using a low carbohydrate diet. And some people are very successful by eating such a low carbohydrate diet so that they wind up not needing so much insulin. And if you take too much insulin over time, it can be uh, detrimental. Because I think a lot of people, they may think of diabetes as quite a mild disease, but actually long-term, the complications, the other health problems that you are more prone to develop can be very serious. Oh, yeah. So if you look at the top two killers in the Western uh, hemisphere, it's heart disease and cancer. Both of those are highly, highly linked to type 2 diabetes and weight. So if you um, have type 2 diabetes, your risk of heart disease just goes way up. Your risk of stroke goes way up. Your risk of cancer goes way up. Um, and then it's also caused blindness and causes amputation, causes kidney disease, causes nerve damage, so causes bad infection. So all kinds of uh, chronic problems, but it contributes to those other problems. So that's why you think, oh, well, it's not heart disease. No, it contributes. It's probably the biggest risk factors, short of smoking, of the modifiable risk factors. And the important thing, of course, uh, if you look at things like heart disease, and you look at the risk factors, there's a number of risk factors that you simply can't do anything about, right? So your age, your genetics, you can't do anything about that. So you have to look at modifiable risk factors. So smoking is probably the number one um, thing. And, and we spent a lot of effort to get people to stop smoking. So that's great. Uh, type 2 diabetes is also a modifiable risk factor. You don't have to have it. If you work on your diet, 
you can actually go into remission in a large number of cases, in the majority of cases. That's not well known. In fact, up until about three years ago, most of the diabetes associations around the world were telling people, once you have it, you have it for life. You can't get rid of it. But it wasn't true. Now they've changed. So uh, both the American Diabetes Association and the Australian Diabetes Association have said, hey, we, we, it can go into remission. It's a disease that can go into remission. And uh, they've set out criteria as to how to define that remission, which implies that it is certainly possible. And what's interesting outside of diabetes is, is what we're learning in terms of other benefits for fasting. For example, when you start to fast for more than three or more days, that seems to create genuine biological changes within the body. Can you explain about that? Yeah, there's lots of different changes and none of it is um, sort of uh, hocus pocus. There's, we're, we've learned about this for many years. As, as you don't eat, your body's going to shift because it needs a source of energy. So you're going to start by burning off, you know, your body stores energy in two ways, sugar and fat. So if you burn down the sugar, then your body's going to need, you know, after about 24 hours to switch over into fat burning. There's also an in-between process, which is called uh, gluconeogenesis, where there is some protein being broken down as well. And that sounds really bad. It sounds like, oh, you're going to lose muscle. But that's not necessarily the case. It's protein. So one of the processes that has been under sort of intense uh, interest is a process called autophagy, where you break down some of these excess proteins. And then when you start to eat again, because your growth hormone is high, your body's going to rebuild it. So this process of autophagy has been described as sort of a natural cellular recycling system, right? You're breaking down unnecessary proteins and recycling them into necessary proteins. And of course, the process of breaking down old things and building new things is a process of rejuvenation. That's literally what the word actually means. Sort of cellular cleansing, essentially. Yeah, you're basically cleansing out. It's, it's like a spring cleaning, right? You're trying to get rid of all the stuff that your body doesn't necessarily need. And it's this process uh, that we think is very important uh, called autophagy. If you look at animal research, for example, the animals that live the longest are the ones who eat the least. And, and even back in the 40s, people were talking about intermittent fasting because they're saying that, well, that might be a more acceptable way to reduce calories, right? It's, you know, it's not rocket science. Um, so, so that is, is a much easier way for a lot of people to do it. So if you simply drop a meal, you're going to naturally eat less as opposed to trying to eat the same number of meals, but stop yourself before you get full, right? It's, it's just a different way to do things, but potentially much more sort of in tune with how we normally operate. So Jason, if you fast over three or more days, this effectively means that inflammation levels and your immune function is reset to some degree. Uh, yeah. So there's, there's data coming out about those sort of things. Now that is not as well uh, understood, but yeah, you can certainly get some kind of decreased inflammation because again, some, one of the things that we see, for example, in a lot of diseases is autoimmune disease. So that's your own body's immune system that is too active and attacking itself. 
So if you're under a state of stress where you don't have any energy coming in, your body may decide, well, I need to sort of settle everything down. You know, I don't need all this excess inflammation. So therefore, I'm going to sort of get rid of, rid of this excess inflammation. So a lot of people have noted, and this is a lot of it is anecdotal uh, and animal studies, that they get less um, inflammatory conditions associated with it. Um, there's data on people who think that they can reset the immune system. Now, again, I have to caution because some of this is animal data. So it doesn't necessarily mean, oh, I have this disease. I simply need to fast. Like we're, we're not at that level of research, um, yet, but we hear it, uh, anecdotally uh, that people say, oh, I started to fast. And I noticed that my you know, this disease really settled down, my joint pain settled down, my thyroid settled down, whatever it is. So, you know, there's no good evidence at this, this point, but it makes sense that the body should do this um, because it's, 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 it's an overactive immune system. It doesn't need to be so active. Um, there's a potential for use with neurodegenerative diseases, for example, um, so these are things like Alzheimer's disease and Huntington's. So there's people who are looking at that as a potential uh, treatment for it, because again, some of these are autoimmune, some of them are degenerative. And if it's degenerative, well, one of the things that happens during fasting is your body builds up uh, growth hormone levels. So you're actually not only, you know, breaking stuff down, but also promoting the growth of stuff that is necessary. So could that be effective? Um, so in addition to all the diseases that are associated with overweight, obesity, type 2 diabetes, which is a lot already, you have, I mean, you, that's already like, you know, heart disease, stroke and cancer, sort of the big three, um, clearly associated with weight. Like there's no question about that. There's also potential for some of these other smaller diseases that are just as important for the people suffering for them. To, to, to benefit. And it's a treatment that, again, is free, is available to everybody, has been used for thousands of years. And, um, you know, there's nothing to stop you from, from doing it, really, because if you do it and you get better, great. If you do it and you don't get better or get worse for some reason, then you stop it, right? You can stop it like that. I just start eating. There, I've broken my fast. Boom done it's over right but again there's no money in it for anybody right it's 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 there's there's nobody sort of promoting that to to doctors it's, it's it doesn't you don't get that road show that comes along with some of the other things but it is a potentially very interesting treatment i mean there's a paper published recently and admittedly this is a case study so it's only one patient with Huntington's, which is a horrible degenerative neurological disease, which leads to complete loss of motor function and cognitive ability. And this one man was basically put on a fasting regime, low-carb fasting regime, and his motor skills improved, whole lot of health indicators improved. Interestingly, not his cognitive function, but a number of other factors clearly did improve. Yeah, there's all sorts of anecdotes like that. And um, so it's certainly worthy of more study to to see if there's any potential there. But again, it suffers from what we talked about at the beginning, which is that there may not be the way that the system is set up. There may not be a lot of research dollars for it. And even if the research gets done, 
there may not be a, a wide promotion of this, even though you'd think that people should be sort of shouting it from the rooftops. But if we take Huntington's at the moment, there's not any good effective treatment. So is that easier? It's not that in that case, you're competing against a drug. Basically, at the moment, there's not really much you can do. Yeah, it it certainly would make sense. That is, if you had it, why wouldn't you give it a try? Unfortunately, what happens is that people uh, say to their doctor, hey, is there any evidence? And the doctor's like, oh, no, there's no evidence it works. Unless you're really reading the, the studies and, and very into it yourself, you almost have to do it in spite of the medical system. Because if you ever come into contact with the medical system, they'll tend to poo-poo these things. Whereas to me, it, it, it makes no sense from, from a patient's perspective. That is, why wouldn't you do it, right? If I do it and it doesn't work, I have lost nothing not even a bit of money, right? I've lost a couple of days where I didn't eat. Maybe I lost a few pounds. That's about it. If you do it and it works, it's a potentially life-changing thing that you've discovered. But do I have any confidence that people will, 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 will present it in this way? No, not really. I was going to say, one area where there is a bit more evidence is in drug-resistant epilepsy. Johns Hopkins actually did quite a lot of work with this. And this was treating children who had epilepsy that didn't respond well to drugs using yeah. basically low-carb diets. And that does seem to have been successful. Oh, it's been very successful in some people. And now it's very well recognized. But the story is very interesting because it wasn't through the uh, sort of efforts of the medical profession <laughs> that this came about. So of course, John Hopkins did a number of studies. This was prior to anti-epileptic drugs being widely available. So they used the ketogenic diet. Some kids got amazingly better. So they, they used this treatment in the 30s. Then of course, anti-epileptic drugs got discovered or made and they're great. And certainly they work very well. So then everything became about drugs. So the ketogenic diet as a treatment for epilepsy uh, was basically lost until uh, this fellow, um, very prominent, I think a Hollywood bigwig, his son had epilepsy and they treated with every drug they knew, nothing worked. They discovered sort of on their own that ketogenic diets work. They want a ketogenic diet and Everything melted away. The, the child got amazingly better, got off all drugs, all seizures stopped, boom, everything got better. And uh, the, therefore, through their efforts of this sort of Hollywood bigwig, uh, they developed the Charlie Foundation, which promoted the ketogenic diet. But again, it never came about because doctors said, hey, I have a better way. It came about because of this sort of one guy. So it's 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 unfortunate because... That shouldn't be the way that medicine advances through the efforts of some Hollywood bigwig, right? It should be through the doctors saying, hey, this treatment has promise, let's research it. But there's no money to research that. And it's interesting, the paradigm is if the child has drug-resistant epilepsy, not that the diet is the first line of treatment. It's generally the last line of treatment, unfortunately. And, and, and certainly it's not an easy diet to follow, but that's not my job, right? To tell you what's easy to do. My job is to tell you what are your options for treatment. And finally, Jason, the other area that people have started to look at both in animal and a little bit of human work as well 
is the use of fasting for people going through chemotherapy. The suggestion that fasting weakens the cancer cells and may reduce side effects from the chemotherapy. Yeah, that's a very interesting uh, sort of frontier of fasting. Unfortunately, not a lot of research in it uh, as yet, but uh, promising. So both ketogenic diets in combination with other drugs, as well as fasting in combination with chemotherapy, very fascinating sort of area that deserves more research. And there is a little bit now because there's a sort of swelling interest in it. So I'm hopeful that uh, if there is a benefit, and I, I don't know that there is, but I'm, I, you know, it makes sense that there could be. Uh, I'm hopeful that more, you know, there will be more of a push to get, get research done in this area. So Jason, if someone's listened to this and they thought, gosh, I'd really love to try fasting, should they see a doctor first? What would be your tips? Um, I think that it depends if you're on medications uh, that are going to affect, are going to be affected like diabetes medications, then absolutely, you need to talk to your doctor. So it's good practice anyway. Luckily, it's much better um, sort of accepted now as you're not going to face the sort of uh, problems you would before. If you're otherwise healthy, then yeah, anybody could do it. And that's, of course, what had been done for many, many years. But if you are on medications or do have medical conditions, always best to talk to your doctor first. Great. Well, Jason, thank you so much for talking today. Really fascinating. Oh, thank you so much. It was a very interesting discussion. I could see how much more stuff that we could talk about for several hours. But... <laughs> Thanks a lot. I really appreciate you fitting it in. Thank you. Okay. Thank Cheerio. you. Bye. Bye. So I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of What Your GP Doesn't Tell You. A reminder, you can sign up for the podcast mailing list at whatyourgpdoesnttellyou.com. Get further details on my Substack newsletter at liztucker.substack.com and follow me on Twitter at Liz C. Tucker. Next week, I talk to Dr. Henry Marsh, who's been diagnosed with treatable but uncurable prostate cancer. Henry, a pioneer in a brain surgery technique carried out while the patient is awake, explains how his perspective changed as a doctor when he became the patient. So do please join me again next week to find out more. And many thanks for listening. Bye for now.